If you've been with us for the past uh, uh, few months here in the fall, we've been working our way uh, through our study of a book called Ecclesiastes. I can remember when I went to uh, seminary, it's one of the many books that I didn't even know that was in the Bible. Um, most people go to seminary because they want to be a pastor. I went to seminary because I didn't know anything. And I figured that ought to be a place where you go to learn something. And it was there that I discovered uh, books of the Bible that I had never read. And this is a one of them. And I've come to find out after uh, 27 years of ministry, not very many people read it. Not many Christians do. And yet, there's so much wonderful wisdom uh, for us to learn. And that's where we are this morning. We are looking at the ninth chapter of Ecclesiastes. You can follow along on the screen. Uh, maybe you've brought a, some digital device or your Bible is in your lap. And if it is, uh, Ecclesiastes in about the middle of the Old Testament, uh, if it opens to the middle, it'll be to your left. Chapter 9. We'll pick it up at verse 2. Hear the word of the Lord as I read. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is the one is he who uh, shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their heart while they live, and after that they go uh, to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they will have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life uh, with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because... That is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it and great king came against it and besieged it, building great uh, siege works against it. But there was found in it poor wise man, and he uh, uh, by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say 
that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and the words are not heard. May God help us to understand this is most precious word. Here's the reason why Ecclesiastes is such an unusual and very helpful book. And why eventually, if we follow it all the way to chapter 12, it leads us to God. The book of Ecclesiastes does not just challenge our, our doubts and beliefs, but it even uh, challenges the doubt of unbelief. This is something nobody does. People will challenge the faith, but they rarely challenge their doubts. It, would be fair, uh, it wouldn't be fair to only uh, challenge one's faith, but also one's doubts. Surely, if you're, if you're going to doubt faith and ask very hard questions, that you should also question your doubts. Shouldn't you doubt your doubts? Shouldn't you also ask hard questions of the things you have questions about. This is why he talks about justice here in chapters 8 and 9, and they are coupled uh, together. We looked at 8 last week and 9 this week. Today he's asking the question, how do you deal with justice of the injustice of life? For some of us today, some of you, uh, the main spiritual problem you have Uh, with Christianity is all the injustices you experience and you see. It's your main problem with God. It's your main problem with the church. It's main uh, problem with the Bible because you see so much suffering and even experience it. For the rest of us, the idea of injustice isn't our main problem. It's just an important one. How do you deal with injustice? The teacher of Ecclesiastes, here's a the, the, the pithy sentence that captures the whole message this morning and the message of Ecclesiastes 9, and I'll unpack it in a moment. But the teacher of Ecclesiastes refuses to let us avoid the question of injustice, but he also won't let us despair when we begin to delve into the injustices of this life. Why? Because there is a judge who will bring justice to this unjust world, and because that judge is also our Savior. And so think of it this way. We're first going to delve into our our propensity to avoid injustices. And that might bring us to the point of wanting to despair over it all, just to say that the writer of Ecclesiastes is such a downer, he's uh, so depressing, I just can't afford uh, to read that on bad days because it'll overwhelm me. There are two biblical answers that are given to us. One is that there is a just judge. And then secondly, for those who are in Christ, the just judge is also our Savior. So first of all, let's look in how he makes sure we do not avoid the injustices of our world. That's the question. Verses 11 and 12 He begins to talk about what is called general injustice that happens to so many people. When he says, the race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, as the fish are caught in a cruel net and the birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. 
That's kind of the gist of what he's saying in those two verses. Why do you think so many of our blockbuster movies today are about superheroes? You ever wonder why they have the titles of the Justice League or the Avengers? It is because we see the injustice. And because it cannot be avoided, we need someone to rescue us. The first couple of sentences of today's headlines go like, there's trouble in the Middle East again. There was a man who killed uh, five uh, folks at the Capitol near the mall. He pleads guilty. California fires have left 150,000 people without a home. A seven-year-old in uh, Chicago lays in critical condition because she was trick-or-treating and a bullet hit her. A teacher's strike left 300,000 students out of school for two weeks. But with a little more research, you can see that it goes deeper than that. Literally tens of thousands of children around the world die daily from largely preventable diseases out of a complacency and selfishness on the part of the people with the power to treat them. They simply fail to do their job. It doesn't matter who you are or where you live. It doesn't matter whether you're good or bad. Horrible things happen to people. It's crazy. And it can happen to anybody. As he says, because it can happen to anybody and at any time, you can't avoid it. The misery and the cruelty of this world filled with injustice. That's the first thing he wants us to understand. He says the race is not to the swift. You may be swift, but that does not mean you're going to win your race. You may be brilliant, but you may not succeed. Frankly, life is unfair. We tell our children that all the time, but as soon as we become adults, we begin to demand fairness. Isn't that ironic? If you think you're in control, if you think that if you just do the right things the right way, somehow you're going to go uh, do well, that things are just going to go well for you, it must be that you're very, very young. Because anybody with any age to them at all know that that's not how it works. You can do all the right things the right way. You can have the mind. You can have the body. You can have the looks. You can have the relationships. And still, life is unfair. Because you are not in control. One of the ways young people tune out injustice it's to go like this. This would never happen to me. It only happens to those kinds of people. Everything you see on the news, everything you read in the newspaper, everything that you hear about in our culture, it always happens to someone else, but never to me. I just know that if I don't want bad things to happen to me, I won't go into those parts of the city. If, if I don't want bad things to happen to me, I won't hang around bad people. The, that's the way in which we think. Many will start to defend themselves at this point in Ecclesiastes and began to, to say this, he's one gloomy guy, this writer of Ecclesiastes. 
And that's why he doesn't stop with just general injustice that affects so many. He begins to talk about a specific, a personal, an ultimate injustice that happens to us all. What is that? Look at verses 2 and 3. As it is with a good man, so it is with a sinner. That's the Bible's way of saying both those in the faith and those outside the faith, those people who, who, who go to church and those that don't. As it is with those who take oaths, as it is with those who don't. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. What's the evil that happens under the sun? Verse 5. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. So what is he saying here? He's not just saying that good people have bad things happen to them and bad people have good things. That was last week's message. If you missed it, you can get it online. This week, he's going much deeper than that. He's going so deep. He's saying that no no matter what you do in this life, whether you live a life of love or hate, whether you're a terrorist or an innocent child, Everything you do will vanish. He's actually saying something a little bit worse than that, if that wasn't bad enough. Even the memory of what you do on this planet, the effect you will have will be forgotten. At the end of the road, for every human being, if this life is all that there is, if there is nothing, then there is nothing. If you're willing to think about it, this makes everything you do meaningless, everything. Because you leave this world into nothingness if there is nothing there. Ecclesiastes is saying we need to wake up even if you build a nation and you think about our founding fathers. You'll be remembered, but only for a while. Eventually, everyone is forgotten. When you die, you rot. And when the sun dies, everything rots. This has often been called by philosophers cosmic forgottenness. This lies at the end of every person's life without an existence of a God. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It's the same destiny. That makes everything in this world pointless. This is why we distract ourselves. Because inside we know this is true. Of course, if you think about it, it will depress you. But then there's sailing. And then there are movies and restaurants. There's alcohol and drugs. We do this because... To face the nothingness is absolutely depressing. Verse 7. He knows our objections. So go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. Always be clothed in, uh, uh, be clothed in white. What is he saying? Don't you dare forget. Don't, don't tune this out. There's a story of Buddha that might be helpful to you. Before Buddha became Buddha, the legend has it, 
that Buddha was a, a, a son of a prince and he lived in a palace. And on, upon his first outing outside the palace, he came across a, an old man. Then he came across a sick man. And then he came across a dead man. And when he realized what was going on, he turned to his servant who was with him and he said, the hearts of men must be hard to be self-composed before such a situation. The young servant turns to his master and says, of course, old age. Everybody knows you lose all your beauty eventually. You lose your memory. You lose all your sensation. Everybody knows this. And then Buddha turns to him and says, you know this, you're not crying out. Why? Why are you not wrestling with this? Doesn't this make everything meaningless? You see, the great ones who begin to think about if there is nothing beside this life, if this is all that there is, then why live? What do you do with the evening news if this is all that there is? I know what I tend to do. I'll watch the news, I'll hear the stories, and then dinner is on the table and I turn it off. But the writer of Ecclesiastes begs us not to do that. Do you want to lose what little humanity you might still have? Don't tune out the brokenness of our culture. He refuses, the writer of Ecclesiastes refuses to us to get out from under this question, what do we do about all the injustice? What do we do about the ultimate injustice of this world? And that is forgetfulness, that we will be forgotten. The Bible says there are two answers to that. And I, I believe it really does boil down to these two. And he gives them both in this passage. One's an answer for the mind, because we Presbyterians like the mind. But there's also one for the heart. All by themselves, they don't work, but they're meant to be taken together. If you're suffering, the first answer will be, insa- will be unsatisfactory, insufficient for you. It's inadequate because you're supposed to have both of these. Well, what's the answer for the mind? Verse 4, it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. What? That is the weirdest verse in the Bible. When ancient people thought about dogs, they didn't think about Labradors. They didn't think about Fluffy. They didn't think about your favorite little pet. Because dogs were scavengers. They were the lowest form of animal on the earth to the ancient world. Dogs lived on garbage and dogs ate cadavers. That's what happens to Queen uh, Jezebel in the Bible. And why does it happen to her? Why do dogs eat her? It's because the dogs deserved the, the woman who was evil. Because they are evil. But a lion, even the ancient world, recognized the lion as the greatest, noblest a creature on earth, even as we see them today. What's he saying then in verse 4? It doesn't matter if you're good or you're noble and everyone respects you or you're a thief, a liar, or everyone hates you. Why? Verse 5. Because love or hate in the end, they vanish. What's he saying? He's saying something very up-to-date, very, very uh, current. What's he saying is, is that if life is all that there is, if this is all that there is, if when you die, you rot, if we just evolved out of accidental forces, then there is no such thing as a right and wrong. There can't be. 
All moral distinctions are pointless. Why? Alistair McIntyre, who's a philosopher, said it this way. There's no such thing as an abstract goodness. Goodness always is relative to its purpose. The example that McIntyre gives is of a watch. If you don't know what a watch is for, you've never seen a watch, and somebody gives you a watch, you ask, what is this? What's it for? If, if the purpose of a watch is to nail a nail, to hammer a nail, then it's not a very good purpose. But if it has a different purpose and you know what that purpose is, then you know it can be good for that purpose. Until you know something, what something is for, you don't know whether it is good or bad. There, things are only good and bad in relationship to their purpose. What makes a good a, a human being good? If we were just accidents, you and I climbed out of the primordial slime, if there's no purpose, then it's ridiculous to say something is bad or something is good. But if you say... You're just here to survive. The strong eat, eat the weak. Better to be a live dog then than a dead lion. If that's all humanity is, is to survive, to outdo those that are weaker than us. You've heard that crazy illustration. You see a, a bear in the wood. You only have to be faster than the slowest person to survive. That seems to be the way many have taken uh, the theory of the strong outlasts the weak. The problem is in verse 3, isn't it? If all of this is true, if all of the, what the writer has been saying, that everything is meaningless, everything goes into nothingness, everything uh, rots in the end, then why in verse 3 does he even bring up this phrase, men are evil? How can he say that? This is the problem. If you believe this life is all that there is, and many, many, many people do, then there's no such thing as injustice. That's his point. But you, deep inside, know that's not true. We know why, because Romans 1 tells us he puts within every human heart the existence of God. But that gnawing feeling, we know that there are evil men, evil women, evil children. There's an incredible contradiction in the heart of every human being. At the heart of unbelief itself, people who say, I don't believe in God because I see all the injustice. But if there is no God, there can be no basis of an outrage of injustice. Let me put it another way. If evil is a problem for belief, it's a bigger problem for unbelief. Because without a just judge, we can't even define injustice. There's no basis for it. That's the answer for the mind. Evil is a problem for belief, but it's a much bigger problem for unbelief. Because we have no basis for our outrage. No basis for working against injustice. In fact, no way to even define it. Unless there is a just judge who's coming to make and hold account everything that is wrong. Now, if you're suffering right now, this answer by itself is cold comfort. So let's move on to the final answer. Our just judge has become, according to J.I. Packer, our Savior. 
And he gives this incredibly weird little vignette. Nobody would have guessed why he stuck this little story of a little poor wise man at the end of 9 until you understand that context. Verse 13, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun. And it seems great to me. The word seems great to me in Hebrew is really just one word. And it means to be amazed or to be confounded. Here he saw a kind of wisdom he had never seen before. Verse 14, there was once a small city with only a few people in it and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man poor but wise and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man, but the poor man's wisdom is despised. There are three things about wisdom he wants us to understand. And first is that this kind of wisdom is a saving wisdom, a little city versus a great king. Very few people in it, very few warriors, but the king has brought his army. The city is absolutely doomed and there's no way out except for, get it, wisdom comes to save the city in a way that you and I would have never envisioned. You see, there was this wise, poor man in the city. And rather than using his wisdom Uh, merely uh, to serve himself, he uses it to serve the city. You see, in the ancient world, everybody understood that wise people were rich people, powerful people. But the wise man in this scripture, he's poor. Frankly, we understand part of this. What we don't understand is how a wise, poor man can save a city. That's because of this third thing he reveals about this story, and that is it's a forgotten wisdom. The most astounding thing in all of this is that he's forgotten. Imagine if your city was saved and you don't remember who saved it. In fact, it's even worse than that. Not only is he forgotten, but he's despised. It's a vicious, deliberating forgetting. Nobody wants to remember the poor wise man. Now, whose name most naturally comes to your mind when we hear of a poor man full of wisdom who became a savior, but whose life and teaching were rejected by the very people he saved? Oh, of course, I'm talking about Jesus. Every kid in the room has already said it. This is how Paul describes that poor, wise man. Christ was crucified But he was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. But to those whom Christ has called, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. It is he who has made us and we not ourselves. We have forgotten him. I don't mean we don't know that there is a God. Not that we've forgotten his name. That's not what I mean. What simply is meant is that we act as though he, he has no interest in what's going on in our daily lives. He's not part of everything that we do. He's not part of the, who we are. We act as though we are still our own gods. And because we have turned our way from the only permanent thing, we have become temporary. Because we've turned away from the only thing that lasts forever, we're going to be forgotten and we know it. You know, the worst thing about in this world is to have been here and to have been forgotten. But here we are told how deep inside 
that cosmic forgottenness, that cosmic nothingness, as the philosopher used to call it, God has done something about it. He sent his son into the world and onto a cross. He did not give us a philosophical argument. He didn't send Jesus to stand on the cross and say, now let me explain to you why unbelief is more of a problem than belief when it comes to the existence of God. No, on the cross he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Another way to put that is why you, my father, who I have known for all of eternity, why have you forgotten me? What was happening on the cross is God is pouring out his cosmic forgottenness on his son that was due us. He was turning his back on his son so that he would not have to turn his back on us. He was forsaken by his friends, forsaken by his enemies, and ultimately forsaken by his father in order that we would not be. That poor man was forgotten so that you could be remembered. This is what gives us context to Isaiah 49. When God says, can a woman forget the baby that nurses at her breast? Yeah, she may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, you are engraved on the palms of my hands. How can he say he will never forget us? Never ever. It is because he forgot his son in order that he might remember us. He bore our cosmic forgottenness. You remember the hymn? Poor though I am, despised, forgot, yet God, my God, forgets me not. And he is safe and must succeed for whom the Lord vouchsafes to plead. If you're not a believer, if you're a skeptic in the room, you're filled with doubts, you're a searcher, you have to get to know this person who came into the suffering and received the suffering for us, all of the injustice of this world, so that God would never forget you. And if you're a Christian, and, and maybe you have forgotten this poor man who received all of the nothingness of the cosmos for you, you need to fill your heart with the knowledge of what this man has done for us, this poor man who was wealthy, and gave up his riches to become poor so that we who are in our poverty might become rich. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this gospel message that you have given us, that you love us dearly. From eternity, we have lived temporary until Christ on the cross received all of our forgottenness that you might remember us. And I pray for anyone in the room who has doubts and questions because of the injustice that they've experienced or the injustice that they see, and I pray that they might see, instead of a God who sits back and hopes that it all works out, you have entered in and will come back as the judge to make all things right. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.